In the 1972 episode, we have a new look Final Five to discuss. The Roos hit the bottom and their five-year plan isn't looking so crash hot now. Geelong have a very un-Geelong-like start to the year and the Bombers make a bold appointment in their new captain coach. Peter Hudson's knee takes centre stage and we get the debut of a player that we actually watched play live. Yes, it's getting to the time. We also farewell legendary coach Norm Smith. All this and more coming up after the song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick -kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We have no real qualifications to bring you this show other than a thirst for knowledge, a desire to relive the past and lots and lots of books. All right, my name's Tim. This is Charlie. Hello, Welcome hello. Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. We are talking about the 1972 season, Charlie. Yes. Which Exciting was time. 50 years ago. Yeah, wow. We're in, uh, we're in 2022 now. Jeez, we're getting close. Yeah. We yes are getting no. close. Closest we've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough. Yes. Um, so 1972, another big year. Uh, lots of changes happening. Uh, but let's get stuck straight into some history, Charlie. Uh, and the song I'm going to choose, Song of the Year, American Pie by Don McLean. Number one in Australia for five weeks. Um, shout out also Number to... Number one forever in our hearts. <laughs> shout out also to Imagine by John Lennon. Um, and... Uh, Boppin' the Blues by Australian band Blackfeather, which was number one during this time as well. What a year. Imagine and American Pie. I think every year from here on we can pretty much say yeah. it's an absolute bangers, yeah. hitter. Yeah, hitter. Yeah, beautiful. All right, well, let's start on the 16th of January with uh, Super Bowl six. The Dallas Cowboys winning their first uh, NFL league, NFL championship, defeating the Miami Dolphins 24-3 to in New Orleans. Good win. Uh, in the start of Feb, we had the Winter Olympics in Sapporo. It's feeling very similar to 2022, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, great, uh, great spot. Good skiing, great beers. Yes. Uh, on the 24th of May, we had the Scottish Association Football Club Rangers FC winning the UEFA Cup, uh, the UEFA Cup uh, defeating FC Dynamo Moscow 3-2. Uh, in Barcelona. A pitch invasion by their supporters led to the team being banned from defending the trophy the following season. Ah. Uh, in August, at the end of August, we had the 1972 Summer Olympics held in uh, Munich, West Germany. Yes, yes. Uh, and in that Olympics, we had Shane Gould winning three gold medals for swimming for Australia. Legend. Uh, on the 22nd of October, we had the Oakland A's defeating the Cincinnati Reds four games to three to capture the World Series. And it was the A's first championship since 1930 when the franchise was in Philadelphia. You go for the A's, don't you? I love the A's. Yeah. I've, got a few, I've got a few teams, but I love the A's. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's, our sport, Melbourne Cup? that's our sporting news. Oh, the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, of course. Oh, I forgot about that one. So the winner of the 1972 Melbourne Cup was Piping Lane. 
Nice. And some births? Any, any, we certainly I heard there's some people some, born who turned Aussie, 50 this year. Some Aussies, yes. Yeah. We're born uh, this year. We had Ange Christou. Yes. We had uh, Damien Oliver on the... Tw- sorry, Ange Christou on the 16th of Jan. Damien Oliver on the 22nd of June. Robbie McEwen on the 24th of June. Nathan Buckley on the 26th of July. Uh, Chris Grant on the 13th of December. Anthony Edwards, the rower, on uh, the 22nd of December. And the great Paddy Rafter on the 28th of December. Excellent. Feeling very, uh, very modern, these births Isn't now, it? Yeah. aren't they? <laughs> All right, some league news. We've got big news, actually. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. The McIntyre final system has been changed for this year we have a final five yes so yes. the first change we've had since 1931 uh, so the, when they brought in the great system oh the, the mcintyre final four the, the best system there is page mcintyre page mcintyre sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so they brought in a final five system this year with the fourth and fifth teams playing off in an elimination final second and third in a qualifying and the first, if you finish first, you get a week off. Yeah, interesting. So, first time we've had that, haven't we? Yes. The week off, yeah. Basically because the VFL wanted to play games at Waverley. That's right. Yeah, they were really pushing hard on obviously this massive uh, investment they've made in Waverley. Yeah, so the more games they could play there, the better. Um, and the at, huge crowds that they've been getting at Waverley. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also trying to take that power away from the MCC. Yeah, so not always relying on the MCC, although they're still having the grand final there. Um making use of Waverley because they hope they can. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Uh, from round 10, the VFL changed the tradi- tradition. The field umpire rather than team captains tossed the coin at the start of the match in order to reduce gamesmanship. Ah. Yeah. So it used to be the one of one of the co- captains would... Go to, I, I guess the home captain would go to the opposite captain and toss and the coin. And he, the other guy would call it. Yeah. And he'd, that's very interesting, yeah. Um, and then in August, this is the big rule, uh, the VFL announced that they would grant a free transfer to any player who had played 10 years with a single club. This is called the 10-year rule. Uh, we're introduced in order to re- render the VFL immune from the sorts of restraint of trade difficulties that were being experienced at the time in New South Wales in relation to rugby league footballers. Oh, so this actually came about because of a, an NRL a rugby situation in Sydney. Yeah. So yeah. they're looking ahead and trying to stop situation th- things that they could see coming. Yeah. Clever also very similar now to free, free agency. agency. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this will play a big part after 1972. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll find out a bit, a bit more about that There'll in the be next... be a fair few players who yeah. would be now eligible for this, right? Well, one of the teams we're about to uh, talk about make very good use of it. Oh, yes, yes, they mm. do. Okay, I'm with you. So let's work our way up the ladder. Well, let's work our way up. So, from, And we're going from 12th to 6th today. Yes, yep. So uh, on the very uh, lowly bottom of the ladder here is... North Melbourne, those kangaroos, with a single win, 21 losses, and a percentage of 62.9%. Coached by Brian Dixon for the second year, uh, and I'm assuming last, <laughs> with one win. And captained by David Dench, yeah, young, ta- taken over from Barry Goodingham. Youngest captain in league history to that point, at 21 years of age. Ah, but we know who took it eventually. <laughs> you certainly do. Um, <laughs> debutants include Anthony Brightus, Russell Muir, and Ron Montgomery. Now, pre-season, this is some news I found out I'd never heard of before. The club asked VFL legend Ted Whitten if he'd like to play on and play with the Kangaroos. Ah. So at 33, uh, 38 years of age, uh, Ted Whitten started training himself and pushing himself to regain match fitness. 
But then show. Brian Dixon went to have a chat to him and said he'd have to earn his spot and come in through the reserves. Witten let it be known that that was not an option and his comeback was over before it began. Mm-hmm. Too much, Fair enough. Too much pride. And look, that whole thing of being a one-club player, as angry as he was at the Bulldogs for sacking him, um, I think he wanted to stay on as a one-club player. Yeah. Uh, but 1972 was really a year to be forgotten on the field for North Melbourne, with their only win occurring in round 17. But it was also a pivotal year for the club in turning around their perceived lack of success as events unfolded late in the year that would mark the beginning of their awakening. It also managed to blood several players of note who would become the backbone of the team in the years to come. But a few things from this season. After 16 losses in the first half of the season by an average of 44 points, the closest closest they came to was was a nine-point loss to the Cats in round 11. They finally broke through for a win in round 17 against South Melbourne. The age reading that North overcame psychological and physical barriers to win its first game of the season. In the last quarter, North could smell the victory, but relaxed when it almost blew it. South held the edge in the first half, but it was Kangaroo Paul Doherty in his second game that broke the game open with four marks and four goals. He inspired his teammates who lifted around the ground with their smaller players, Vin Doolan, Mark Dawson and Robert Peterson, all giving something at different stages. The Roos trailed by two points at the last break, but North continued to play a better team game, while Peter Bedford was a lone hand for the Swans. Although South continuously attacked and in their desperation, several North defenders kept flying for the ball at the same time. North's John Perry kicked the last two goals to seal victory for the North Melbourne Football Club for the first and only time this season. Made even sweeter for Brian Dixon because he got a win over his former coach, Norm Smith. Oh, yeah. Mm. We know they, they had some, uh, they butted heads quite a few times as yeah. well. Well, who didn't he butt heads with? <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, but then they lost their final matches by an average of 53 points. Some how, s- how do you get yourself up as a, as a, well, as a player, but as a supporter yeah. to go every week? As some, a player especially. Mm, yeah, so some true. stats leaders for this season. Keith Gregg and Ken Montgomery had 340 kicks each, leading the kicking. Uh, Barry Goodingham had 140, 153 marks and 182 hitouts. And Keith Gregg also had 84 handballs for a total of 424 disposals across the season. But the big news, and we'll talk more about this next season, was that in September... North Melbourne Football Club appointed Ron Barassi as its coach for 1973. Yes. And then in October, they would exploit the 10-year rule and recruit several big-name players. Several. Yeah. I'd say more than several. <laughs> no, no. Well, se- several using the 10-year the, the ten rule, yes. they used a few. Oh, okay, yeah, But yeah. then they went on a spree across Australia as well. Yeah. Uh, so, the leading goal kicker for the Roos this year was Vin Doolan, with 19. Vin Doolan and Kekovic both had 19, I yep. should say. Doolan took him out by two behinds. Okay. Uh, and the Sid Barker medal was won by um, Ken Montgomery. Okay. Uh, so I wonder whether, because I'm just looking here, so David Dench won the Sid Barker last year. I wonder why whether that's why they gave him the captaincy yeah. as a 21-year-old. Lead by example. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure to put on a young man. Yeah. And back in those days, there was no real like, there's no real training if you were a captain. It's like here you go, you're captain. Yeah, yeah. Like you weren't given leadership training no, or no, support. Of really? Or, yeah. Or like, a, yeah. It's just a role. It's a big thing. Yeah. 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 Right. Interesting. All right. Creeping up that ladder, and you wouldn't be surprised to know that in eleven, in eleven spot was the only team that North Melbourne beat this year, which was South Melbourne, with two wins and twenty losses and a percentage of sixty-five point one. 
So captained by John Rantel, taking over from Bobby Skilton, yes. as we know. Uh, and uh, coached by Norm Smith. Yeah, some debutantes include Norm Goss and Tom Heenan, both from Port Melbourne. Peter Woodman, Stuart Gull, and Greg Miller, who... Can you tell us a little bit about Charlie? Yeah, absolutely. So Greg uh, Miller was originally from East Burwood uh, and then played for Richmond's Thirds before he transferred to Melbourne during... South Melbourne. Sorry, South Melbourne during the '72 season, so he played the most of his most of his career at full back, but um, persistent knee problems contributed to his retirement from footy. Uh, Greg Miller is known more for his role in footy administration after playing, which he started in 1980 when he was made South Melbourne's recruiting officer. There he became CEO of North Melbourne after that from '85 to '89, and then again from '95 to 2001. And most importantly, in that role. In 1987, he secured the signature of uh, the King, Wayne Carey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. It, yeah. So, more known for off field stuff. I think he went to Richmond after that as well. Okay. In the yeah. 2000s. So, yeah. yeah, quite a big name. And, and, yeah, I thought it was interesting to talk about him. Very. Uh, round one, the Swans started with a win against the odds against Geelong. Norm Goss kicking three goals on debut and Peter Bedford best on ground. The Sun saying that big-hearted Russell Cook never stopped trying to combat Geelong's heavyweight rucks. The Swans' accuracy, pace and teamwork left Geelong floundering. Norm Goff and Stephen Hoffman buzzing around the packs early set the scene. They took control in the second half to win by an even two goals. So the first thing, that's what you want as Norm Smith. Yep. Win first round. Four straight losses followed. And it wasn't until round six that they got win number two. This time against the Kangaroos at Waverley. Here's the ages review. South Melbourne rover Peter Bedford ruined the game at the VFL Park on Saturday. For the 9,000-odd fans who tripped out to Mulgrave to see the battle between two of the league's poorer teams, Bedford stood out as the man who prevented them witnessing a close, hard-fought, interesting game. (laughs) At quarter time, North was 17 points in front, and the crowd was sensing an upset. And Brian Dixon was even thinking of the Kangaroos' first win of the season. They were drawing away from South and the pace jewels, winning in the air and showing that victory was not too far away. But moments into the second quarter, it happened. Bedford. He started to win the ball with ease. He used the vast acreage of the arena to find form by touring both attack and defence, encouraging teammates on the way. North managed only one point in the vital second quarter and South was sitting pretty with a 13-point lead at half-time. North tried to fight back into the game in the second half, but the difference was already there. South by 15 points, and this was unfortunately their second and final win of the season, but probably more sadly, it was Norm Smith's last winner's coach. Ugh, what a way to end. During the Swans' round 10 loss to the Magpies, Wayne Walsh wasn't listening to Norm Smith and was promptly sent out of the room. (laughs) Funnily enough. Yeah. Same thing happened during the week at training, and so Walsh uh, walked out. He never played for the Swans again. Oh, really? And he was actually... So he'd originally come from the Tigers... They'd, they'd acquired him in 1968 and they'd paid a transfer fee of $500 for him. When they traded him back to the Tigers in 1972, the transfer fee was $8,000. <laughs> so it's a really good investment there. Yeah, it's worked out well. Yeah. Uh, round, so round 11 against the Tigers at the G, they could only manage two goals for the whole game. Round 13, they came close. They lost to the Bombers by three points. In round 17, they suffered the... Um, Embarrassment? Yes, of losing to North Melbourne, the only team to do so all season. Now, in the last few weeks, there was speculation that Norm Smith would be given the flick. 
but President Stan Keane assured the team he would be reappointed for 1973. Oh. Here's some stats for the Swannies for this year. Leading the kicks was John Petura with 352. Peter Bedford with 111 handballs. Russell Cook with 151 marks. Peter Bedford with disposals, 404. And Russell Cook with 178 hitouts. Following the season, Norm Smith was told that the club would be advertising the position and that they hoped he would reapply. Oh, yeah, okay. Guess how they told him this news? Uh, in the, in they the cour- press. They couriered a letter over to his house. Oh, he's, he loves a courier. Mm, that's right, a letter. Huge on a courier. Um, he chose not to apply. And although the players wanted him to and supported him, he told them he was flattered by it, but his, their loyalty was to the club, not to him. They held a last supper for Smithy at the George Hotel. I think that's one of your favourites, isn't it? Yeah. Love the George. Uh, and surprisingly, the committee were not invited. And yes. thus, Norm Smith has kind of lost to football. Yeah. Well, I mean, not really, because we'll, we'll find out what happens in 73. But as a coach, He's gone. this is his, this is his time. Yeah, it's just over like that since 1949. Yeah. When he took on Fitzroy. Yeah, huge. Yeah, wow. And when you think, go back to playing days as well, 30... Yeah. 37, 38. Yeah. yeah. That's a long time in the game. Huge, huge amount of time. So you wouldn't be surprised to know that Peter Bedford was, of course, South Melbourne's lead goal kicker no. with 28. Uh, and the Bobby Skilton medal in 1972 went to Russell Cook. Sweet. Mm. Uh, so climbing up that ladder to the 10th spot was Geelong. Huge jump from 11 and 12 here with seven wins and 15 losses. They're very un-Geelong-like to be yeah. slow down. All right. yeah. And De- 84.2%. So they were uh, coached by Bill McMaster and captained by Doug Way. New captain. Debutants include Greg Wells, different from the Demons' Greg Wells, which we don't have. Yeah. Uh, Robert Watman, Greg Lindquist, Ivan Russell and Paul Sarah. As you said, they're quite low down. They started the season disastrously, losing their first 10 games. In round 11, they finally broke through for their first win of the season against North Melbourne, of all teams. In a close game at Waverley, the lead ebbed and flowed, but the Roos took the lead at half-time. Before Geelong clawed its way back and held on for a nine-point win, Doug Wade, the star here, with seven goals. They made it back-to-back wins the next week in Gareth Andrews' 100th. They hosted the Swans, a five-goal-to-nothing second quarter set up their win, as well as Doug Wade's eight goals and Ken Newland's 31 touches. In round 13, Wayne Cloister was the driving force in Geelong's great win over the Tigers. David Clark on the half-forward flank played on three different opponents as he added five goals to go with his 31 disposals. Doug Wade kicked 11 goals too. Cats won by 76 points. Of note, though, was Sam Newman's incredible... uh, Inaccuracy yeah. in kicking the opposite of Doug Wade, two goals, 11. Oh, that hurts. Then they made it four in a row against the Bombers, led by Ian Nankervis with his 36 disposals. They finally dropped the game before round, four, round 16. They beat the Lions by getting first use of the ball at the centre bounces and quickly ramming home their attacks. John Newman controlled the ruck and Ian Nankervis ran wild. Cats by 16. Round 18, they went down to the Doggies in a really close game and in this game, Doug Wade uncharacteristically... Took a mark late in the game, shot on goal and kicked it into the man on the mark. Oh. You could say he did a Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> now, round, teen, round 19, they suffered an embarrassing loss to Melbourne. So much so that following this game during the week, their coach came out and said the players were too scared to go in and win the ball. Ooh. But what a way to respond. Yeah. Round 20, they took on the Magpies who came to visit at Cardinia Park. And they were outclassed and outplayed for two quarters. They trailed by 49 points at halftime. 
but the Hats chipped away at this deficit in the third, still trailing by 33 going into the last break. But a flurry of goals in the last quarter brought them back to life, and with scores level at 111 each and the final seconds ticking away, the Cats sent the ball forward, and Ken Newland rose with a pack and took a mark just as the siren rang. Love it. Now, there was some speculation that the, uh, the siren rang beforehand. Of course. Mostly from Collingwood supporters. Yeah, funnily um, enough, But yeah. the umpire ruled it a mark. Pandemonium broke out, and fans swarmed onto the ground. From 30 metres out, Ken Newland uh, kicked the most important point of his career, giving the Cats a one-point win over the Magpies. Geez, that's a nice position to be in. Like, as long as I don't completely spray this, we've got the game. Yeah. Yeah, love that. The final win of the season came in round in the last round with a romping win over the Kangaroos at Cardinia Park. Nankervis led the way again, while Doug Wade, in his last game as a Cat, kicked seven, David Clark six. Huge. Huge. So you're very, very low there, but you wouldn't be surprised to know that uh, Daggy Wade, lead goal kicker for Geelong, with 90, 90 goals, 59 points. And the Kaji Greaves medal in 72 went to Ian Nankervis. Yeah, he had a good, good season. Yeah. Uh, so climbing up again to the single digits now. In ninth spot, we've got Fitzroy with nine wins and 13 losses and a percentage of 96.8%. So, coached by Graham Donaldson and captained by Kevin Murray. Yep. And I want to say this. So, Kevin Murray, that is his captain for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. Eight years as captain. Yeah. Is With that... A, not, not... Including his break? Inc- including the break, yeah. So, eight years as captain. Yeah. 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 Debutants include uh, Ian McCulloch, who was a prize recruit from East Perth, Jimmy Christou, Ray Brain and Gary Newman. Jerry Noonan. Pre-season, the Fitzroy Football Club, in conjunction with the Fitzroy St Kilda Sports Club, honoured Kevin Murray by naming their main grandstand in his honour. So nice. as you drive down Lakeside Drive, I think it's Lakeside Drive, when you go past Junction Oval, yeah, that stadium you see on the right, the brick one, is the Kevin Murray stand. Oh, at Junction? Yeah. Of course, because then, yeah. Is yeah. it really? I'm pretty sure. There you go. Check next time. I will. Yeah. Um, President Ern Joseph described Murray as the greatest Fitzroy player of all time. Yeah. Greater than Hayden Bunton. Yeah, Maybe the most dedicated. Mick Grace. Yeah, the Flying Angel. Yeah, Percy Parrott. There's a few. There's yeah. a few back in the early yeah. days. Um, they started with a loss to the Blues, but then things actually really picked up. Round two on a windy day against the Saints, the Lions did not let the wind worry them. They marked better and got much more value for the big men around the ground. Things were pretty even at half-time, but the Lions took the initiative in the second half, and once they realised they could win it, played an inspired last quarter, led by Kevin Murray and Renato Serafini. The Lions beat the Saints by eight points. In round three, against lowly North Melbourne, um, the performance was appalling, and it was only coach Graham Donaldson's smart guidance that stopped the Lions from losing. With only five of their players pulling their weight, the Lions took until the last quarter to break away from the Kangaroos. Led again by Kevin Murray and Russell Crowe, as well as Rovers John Murphy and Gary Wilson, who continually sent up accurate kicks to the goals. In a desperate last quarter, the Lions won by 23. Then against the reigning Premiers, Hawthorne in round four, the Lions proved the doubters wrong. They defeated the Hawks. Uh, Crowe dominated the ruck duels and steadied the side with strong marking around the ground. David Rhodes was excellent on the wing. They led by five points at the half and had a better second quarter, second half overall. Wall, Richards and Serafini with two each. Also the first time they'd beaten the Hawks since 1963. Mm. 
In round five, they thrashed the Cats, so much so that Doug Wade said they were the best team they'd played all season in the first five rounds, I suppose. Kevin Murray continuing to defy his age and leading from the front. Gary Wilson again kicked four and was close to best on ground. Um, Suddenly, they'd won four on a trot and were being talked at as definite finalists. But we know, Charlie, that whenever talk like this starts... Oh, we know the wheels fall off. They fell off. Against the Swans in round eight, Fitzroy's constructed... So they won, they'd lost their next two. Yeah. Okay. From, from that. Against the Swans in round eight, their constructive use of handball controlled in the air and more effective disposal were the main components of their win in this game. The Lions took 123 marks to 58. Yeah, wow. Laurie Richards was best on ground with 16 marks, 10 handballs, 22 kicks. Gary Wilson with another five goals from the middle. Very controlling performance, that. Yep. Um, in round 11, John Murphy and Laurie Richards were the stars against the Demons. Richards had been wasteful all day until kicking the winning goal. And Murphy was sublime with 38 kicks and nine marks. 15 of his kicks came in the first quarter. The Demons' Paul Callery had a shot to win with the last kick of the match, but was knocked off balance and only managed a point. Um, the Lions home by that same margin, one yeah. point. In round 15, they played as hard as necessary to beat the winless Kangaroos, kicking 7-4 in the opening quarter to win eventually by 44, which didn't really impress the 7,007 spectators who turned up to watch this game. <laughs> 7,000? Yes. Yeah. Following the round 16 loss to Geelong, uh, Coach Donaldson trained his players on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, which in those days was unheard of. Yeah. He only trained, you know, once or twice times. a week. Yeah. yeah. Flogged them. Good old fashioned flogging, you'd call it. But it saw the Lions outmatch the dogs at Waverley, winning with pace, teamwork, evenness, and accuracy. Wilson best on ground again. Kevin Murray did a great job subduing Bernie Quinlan. Their final win was round 19. Laurie Richards again the star with 16 marks and 25 kicks. Kevin Murray rarely put a foot wrong leading the defence. Now, round 22 was actually supposed to be Kevin Murray's last game. He informed the club he was going to head west again. Okay, yep. The Lions lost the game, but Kevin Murray was cheered off. However, we haven't seen the last of him. Of course not. Now, the other thing of note for the Lions this year was Doug Nichols was officially knighted in 1972. Ah. Ex-player from the 30s. Um, I believe it was in about June... Oh, obviously the June, the Queen's birthday is when all that stuff gets announced, isn't it? Yep. Yep. So around that time, Doug Nichols became Sir became Doug Nichols. Sir Doug Nichols. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Now surely uh, John Murphy's winning best and fairest. Uh, no. Leading goal kicker. No. Ugh. Nineteen seventy-two. John Murphy won it in seventy-one. Gary Wilson won it in seventy-two, and he also won their leading goal goal-kicking with 37. So leading their goal-kicking from the middle yeah. is pretty strong showing. It also tells you they got no one to kick it to. No, exactly. Forward. Yeah. Very interesting. So next up in eighth spot on the ladder are those mighty demons, not so mighty anymore, <laughs> with 10 wins and 12 losses and 105.9% coached by Ian Ridley and captained by Frank Davis. So, bit of a middling performance from the Ds. Yeah, so debutants include Peter Dilnot, Wayne Dalmenko, and Peter Yo. Sorry, Delman, Delmenico. Delmenico. Wayne Delmenico. You heard of him? It's okay if you haven't. A pre-season trip to Sydney set the scene for the year. The players rose at 5.45am every morning for two-hour workout sessions on the beach before going to football school. Good. Yeah. Also in the pre-season, it seemed that Greg Park would leave as he started training with Subiaco in the Waffle. But he stuck around making his way from the reserves into the seniors for the second round. The Dees lost the third game, and although Ray Carr 
had kicked 11 goals across those three games, he was named as a reserve against the Swans in round four. As Tiger Ridley explained, he was dropped because he didn't lead down the ground as he was told. Carr's replacement, Greg Park, was dominant in this role, and Ray Carr never played again for the Demons. Wow. In this game, Ross Dillon was handy at centre-half forward, and his forward line colleagues, Shane McSpearin and Peter Sinclair, kept their opponents under control. Seven goals to a solitary point, including six goals in the first ten minutes during the first quarter, put the Swans away. A mark of their domination was Melbourne's advantage of 102 to 51 marks. Now, I believe it was that last... We talked about the mark differential with the Swans and the Lions in the last game, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. So it just must be part of the Swan... Part of North's play with the Swans is don't take lots of marks. <laughs> just... Um, two weeks later in round six against the Bombers, a high-quality match saw the first seven goals scored in 13 minutes without a miss. The Demons held a narrow lead at the first two changes before surrendering at the last break. A spiteful all-in brawl evolved. Nearly every player on the ground broke out during the third quarter, starting when Peter Crackers Kinnan was elbowed in the face in the back pocket while he was waiting for the doctor to check him over. Bombers captain coach Des Tudnam started his own fight with Tony Sullivan. Within 10 seconds, almost every other player on the field had contrived to involve himself in the brawl downfield. At one point, a boundary umpire became buried under four players while trying to separate the melee. Despite several spectators and journalists seeing haymakers thrown and reporter describing one of the Melbourne players as having thrown the best punch he'd ever seen, <laughs> no one was reported. <laughs> the VFL umpires board later rebuked all the officials on the day for not having found anybody to book. When the heat died down in the last quarter, the Demons stole the lead back, kicking eight goals to three to help them break the shackles and win their second match of the year. How can no one get reported from that? Yeah. Imagine that now. No, yeah. They'd well, all be reported. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've got more than one camera on the game now, yeah. right? So it's probably a bit easier. Um, the Demons were a disorganised rabble in a loss to Carlton, but took the same side into round eight against the Cats. Early in the game, the Demons rushed to a 55-point lead over the flailing Cats, but they hit back and by the last quarter within, were within 10 points of the Ds and with all the momentum. But their experienced players couldn't help them get over the line and Melbourne sent them back down the highway without the points. D's by 33, Greg Park kicking six, Stan Alves best on ground. Round 10 saw former teammates Ian Ridley and Brian Dixon coach against each other for the yeah. first time. With Dixon's Kangaroos welcoming them to Arden Street. Match was so all right. Pretty incredible. Like there's four coaches, four coaches now, including Norm Smith. Who... Including Barassi who's not coaching? Oh yeah, of course yeah. he's not. Yeah, whoops. Yeah. Not this year. Yeah. I don't know what you mean. Though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the match was already almost over at quarter time. The Demons having put together what remains their greatest first quarter in the history of the club. Really? 11 goals, 7. <whistles> and the only time that any Melbourne side has opened the game with 10 or more goals. Jeez, I would have taken that as a full-time score a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was also the greatest ever VFL opening term. North won the second quarter and almost broke even in the third, but with much maligned recruit John Tilbrook back into the side off the bench in the last. Melbourne piled on another eight goals, three to one goal, three to extend the margin over 100 points. With six kicks, three marks and two goal assists, Tilbrook showed fans why he hadn't, wasn't yet a lost cause. <laughs> um, biggest win against North Melbourne and the highest score ever kicked at Arden Street. Massive. In round 12, the Hawks' first visit to the MCG since they won the 71 flag saw them get out of the blocks early with seven goals to two. But over the next two quarters, the Demons reeled them in, and early in the last, the Demons finally took the lead. The Hawks then had four shots in the last eight minutes to win the match, but kicked three points and booted one out in the full. The Ds holding on by a point. Burke best on ground. 
In round 13, Ridley's tactics against the Dogs at Waverley was to punch the ball away from the Dogs' big men, and it worked quite well. The Ds extended their supremacy and confidence. They were able to beat the Dogs in the air, and that was a sure sign the Dogs were floundering. The Ds won by 37. Barry Burke again magnificent, Wells best on ground. Then they made it three in a row with a four-goal win over Norm Smith's Swans. But just when there were hopes of finals, they suffered four straight losses. Ah. So by the time... So with their season already over, the Ds travelled down the highway looking for respect and got it with a comfortable win in what Cats coach Bill McMaster described as his side's worst game in 20 years. <laughs> and this is where he came out afterwards and said, we weren't hungry enough, we didn't want to go oh, in and yep, get the yep, ball. And then they turned around, yep. For three quarters, the Ds sliced the Cats up like they were at a... At opposite ends of the ladder. At half time, they were 10 goals in front and had extended the lead to almost 100 points at the last change. Wow. Only the Demons putting their feet up in the last quarter allowed the Cats some respectability. Um, they kicked seven goals, but also Greg Park kicked seven goals for the game. Yeah, so, yeah. Great. Good on him. When you beat the Cats by that much down Geelong, it's pretty happy. Yeah, yeah. Gotta uh, take it. Round 21 against the Roos. The scores were even at three quarter time, albeit only because Melbourne's abysmal one goal, 10 third quarter. Tiger Ridley unleashed two positional moves which helped win the day. The move of Stan Elves to half-forward flank and Wells into the forward pocket were the winners. Uh, with Gary Hardiman sparking, a full four, sparking at full forward, the Ds took over 10 minutes into the last to slam on eight goals to spare the blushes of losing to lowly North Melbourne. Mm. They took on the Lions in the final game of the season and after a close first quarter, the Ds took the ascendancy in the second and never looked back. Brewer and Wells kicked four goals each. So, I mean, if it wasn't for that... Mid-season little, slump. Yeah, yeah, that little four-game Yeah, slump. I mean, they could have been knocking could've on. Been right there. Yeah, they had some big, big wins. What was their percentage? Uh, it was, yeah, good, 105. So they, so for a team that finished eighth, they have a percentage over 100 is... Not bad, is, is it? Pretty good. Yeah. Um, so leading goal kicker was Greg Park with 63. Yeah, not bad. So he came in and, yeah, couldn't shake him after that. Dad would win you the Coleman in these days. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, Tilbrook kicked 10 for the yeah. season. Yeah, right. Diamond, is he, he Diamond Jim? Yes. Yeah. Jo- jo- the big, big recruit. The one that we paid all that money for a couple of years ago, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, that was him. Yeah. Uh, and the best and fairest, the Keith Bluey Truscott Award went to Stan Alves with Greg Wells coming runner-up. Yeah. yeah. Not surprising Alves. that those two are right up there. Yeah. Uh, so taking us up to seventh spot on the on the ladder is, are those mighty doggies, Footscray. Uh, 11 wins, 11 losses, 94.7%. So coached by Bob Rose. The first outside of the coach of the dog since Jim Crow in 1947. I was going to say, it's been a while. Well, it's pretty much been Sutton and Whitten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 years, hasn't it? And captained by Frank Davis. Yes, debutantes include Carl Vesti, Ray Stamp, Bob Fox, Gary Steele and Alan Stoneham. Now, round two was Bob Rose's first win for the club, which was over the Demons at the MCG, in a game which turned on its head several times. The Dogs won because they had superior aerial skills. Melbourne had held a 10-point lead at three-quarter time but were overhauled by the fast-finishing doggies. Footscray used an old Melbourne trick of playing a decoy forward to allow their ruckman to become the aerial threat. Hey. Barry Round kicked three in five minutes before Melbourne could counter and the game was all over. Two weeks later in Round 4 was a strong win over the Roos, followed two weeks later in Round 6 with a strong team win over the Lions by 22. In Round 7, the dogs went to Geelong and fell behind early and struggled to keep up. Behind by 21 at the last break, Bob Rose threw centre-half forward Peter Welsh to full forward and his tactics paid dividends. The Dogs kicked eight goals in the final quarter to snatch a three-point win. It was the Dogs' first win at Cardinia Park for 27 years, Quinlan with five and Thorpe with 32. Round 8, probably the game that Bob Rose had circled at the start of the year. Yeah. Footscray versus Collingwood at Victoria Park. 
for the first time as opposition coach, but he had the knowledge, didn't he? He knew of course he did. exactly. He was an inside man. He knew exactly how Collingwood would play and how to plot their downfall. The Dogs cut off Peter McKenna's to play at half forward. Stuart McGee and Peter Welsh making sure that they won the ball. Uh, fullback Gary Merrington held McKenna to one goal, which was kicked five minutes into the last quarter. This was their first win at Victoria Park since 1961. Massive. Mm. So 11 years since a win. At Victoria Park, yeah. yeah wow. And very satisfying as the ex-coach, I reckon. They beat the Swans in round nine to make it four in a row, sitting only percentage out of the top five. In round 12, the Dogs were led by Jack Collins on the wing, who was too fast and agile for the Bombers, and George Bissett dominating the second half. The Dogs ran away from the Bombers at Windy Hill with a dominant last quarter. Laurie Sanderland's kicking seven. This was actually their third straight win at Windy Hill. Nice. So they're doing some good winning at opposition grounds, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Round 14, Alan Stoner makes his debut at 16 years of age. He had eight disposals and kicks a goal in the Dogs' six-goal six win over North Melbourne. Round 15 and the Doggies win over the Saints. 18-year-old and six-gamer Stephen Boyle uh, has a collision in the last quarter with defender Kevin Cowboy Neal. Um, he cops, a, an, I, th- I believe it was an elbow into the eye. He was admitted to hospital with bleeding behind the eye and needed surgery to stop blood from reaching his brain. Oh, Doctors were unable to prevent him from permanently losing the sight in his right eye. And although he completed a, he attempted a comeback, he never again played VFL. Oh. So six games... That's awful. Yes. Yeah, not great. Cop that, yeah. Uh, round 18 saw the Cats desperate for revenge after that humiliating... Uh... Well, they beat the Cats earlier in the season, so... Yeah. The Cats were looking for they some revenge. Yep. The difference in this game was Gary Dempsey for the Dogs, who limited the Cats' use of the wind early. With the Cats leading at every change, the Dogs made a final quarter charge. Doug Wade put the Cats in front late, and the Dogs couldn't buy a goal. It was up to Dempsey to right the ship. He took a mark over 60 metres out and calmly took a shot at the big sticks. His long punt went through, giving the Dogs a lead and ultimately a four-point win. Nice. Now, round 20 was the Dogs' final win of the season. Away against the Swans, the Dogs were never really challenged. and It was George Bissett who, with 34 disposals and a goal, led the Dogs to victory. Beautiful. They obviously lost their last two games. Yes, yeah, so finished on a low. But anyway, at least we finished on a high for them. So lead goal kicker with, was Laurie Sanderlands with 39, with George Bissett just behind him on 38. And the Charles Sutton medal in 1972 went to Peter Welsh. Yeah, yeah. nice. No surprises there yeah. from any of that. Look, not a bad season by the Doggies. You'd be happy with those away wins, but, you know. It's it taken, sp- taken those other ones. That's what makes a, a team, right, is winning the ones that you don't look like you're going to mm. win. Winning ugly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... That takes us up to sixth spot on the ladder and our final team outside finals. Yep. And it's the Hawks. And it's the Hawks, the reigning premiers. The reigning premiers out of the finals. Uh, shades of 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah. a lot of doggies in 2017. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, with 13 wins and 9 losses, 111 points. Nothing's changed down there. Still coached by John Matthews Senior, of course, and captained by David Parkin. Yeah, we've got, some, we've got a, a big debutant as well. I mentioned at the top that there was a player who I had seen play live. That player, of course, is Michael Tuck. Yes, it took me a little while to figure that one out. Off, off air. Tell us a little bit about uh, Tucky. Of course. Well, gosh, I could, you could talk forever about Tucky, couldn't <laughs> you? But let's keep it short. Michael Tuck was one of the most durable players in VFL-AFL history, and yet it took him several seasons to secure a regular place in a strong Hawthorne lineup. 
Raised in Berwick in Melbourne's outer southeastern suburbs, Tucky joined Hawthorne in 1971 from the country's own club of the same name and remained at the club for his entire career. The Hawks used him in several different positions during his early days at the club, but it wasn't until they tried him as a ruck rover that he really hit his straps. Lean and wiry, Tucky was deceptively strong, handled the ball extremely well, and could run all day yeah. for 400 and whatever Three odd games. matches. Oh, no, 420. 12. No, yeah, yeah. 420 something. Yeah. And however many premierships and a ridiculous amount of finals. Yeah. Just like, just ridiculous. Yeah. The, yeah. Other, the other debutante was Kelvin Matthews, who was Lee Matthews' brother. Ah. Yeah. There you go. I didn't, um, realize, I didn't know that they, the two brothers played together. That's interesting. It's quite funny that there's a lot of these champion players. Like Dick Reynolds is another who played alongside his brother. Tim yeah. Watson played alongside his brother. Yeah, there you go. But you didn't know that. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, round one at Glen Ferry against the Demons. The Hawks unfurled the 1971 pennant before Hudson began to run amok. He booted eight goals in less than a half of football. His second of those eight was his 600th career goal. From 102 matches, still the fastest ever to reach 600. Then it happened. Just before the halftime siren, he marked within range of his ninth goal. It was grabbed by his opponent as he fell, twisting his knee. A subdued Hawks crowd saw their team close the game out to win by 29 points, but this has shades of John Coleman written all over it. Yeah. Um, It would be some eight weeks before Hudson and the Hawks would know the full extent of his fate. Hudson would eventually learn that he was out to be out of football for at least a year. And we've got a nice little poem here I found as well. Yes. Charlie, you're, you love reading these poems. I certainly do, I certainly do. Uh, so this was received in the paper from a reader, Mrs Peg Whitehill, uh, on the very subject of Peter Hudson. And it is called Ode to Hudson's Knee. In these days of nuclear testing, unemployment and LSD, what do I read upon the headlines, the latest on Hudson's Knee? When Mr. McMahon was leaving on his bad will trip overseas, the last thing he said to his colleagues, keep me posted on Hudson's knee. As the last Apollo moonshot blasted off from Cape Kennedy, the astronauts monitored Houston for a report on Hudson's knee. <laughs> I turned on to the sporting program for the results from the TAB, just in time to see Dr. Ferguson <laughs> being quizzed about Hudson's knee. <laughs> to escape, I turned to Parliament for a debate on poverty. They interrupted proceedings for a bulletin on Hudson's knee. In despair, I paid a visit to church for some peace and sanity, just in time to hear the priest reciting three Hail Marys for Hudson's knee. (laughs) The only thing left to go to bed for some peace and tranquility, only to have the most terrible nightmare, I was sitting on Hudson's knee. (laughs) And you can imagine how it would have dominated the papers. Completely. The press love to do that and they get stuck on something that just dominates over and over. And especially as you said, like it took them such a long time to figure out what was wrong. Mm. That whole six weeks it would have been like, when's he back? What's going on? We saw him at the doctor's. He went and did this. We saw him take the bin out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So round two at Arden Street, the Hawks really need Hudson. They flogged Kangaroos by 62 points and followed this up with a 42-point win over Geelong to go to the top of the table. Um, A loss to Fitzroy by 19 points was followed by a 28-point win over Footscray, a 5-point win over Collingwood at Victoria Park after scores were level at three-quarter time, and an 18-point win over South Melbourne, which put the Hawks on top of the ladder again. In round eight against Richmond, after a big 1971 season in the reserves, kicking 63 goals, Michael Tuck made his debut at Waverley, a game that also included fellow telephone box-er, Kevin Bartlett. 
From a telephone. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah, with you. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, they you, could have a yeah, they could have a um, reunion in a telephone, telephone box. box. Yeah. 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 Uh, he kicked goals with his first three <laughs> kicks as well. Really? Ducky, yeah. Regardless, the Hawks, Hawks lost by seven points despite kicking two more goals than the Tigers. 13-6 to 11-25. Hawthorne then took on second place Essendon and lost an epic game by just two points. They would rue their inaccuracy, kicking 14-21 to the Bombers, 15-17. Lethal Lee was the chief culprit, kicking three goals, eight. Inaccuracy plagued the club again in the following weeks. In round 10 against the Blues, uh, they overcame the Carlton by three points. They kicked 11-22 to 13-7, so... The inaccuracy helped them win, I suppose, there. The Hawks led by 21 points at three-quarter time, but kicked just seven behinds in the last quarter to Carlton's four goals one. Lucky to not uh, get beaten there. Yeah. Luck played no part of the next week when St Kilda thumped them to the tune of 54 points at Moorabbin. More heartbreak followed the next week against Melbourne when the Hawks lost by one point to the Ds at the MCG, their first visit to that venue since they won the flag. Four solid wins against lower-ranked sides followed, pushing the Hawks back up to fourth on the ladder. The third of those wins by 30 points against the Cats at Glenferry Oval in round 15 was the club's 300th win hey. from 882 games. Wow. The other wins were 64 points over North, 53 over the Lions and 41 over Footscray. So they're beating the teams they need to beat. Yep. In round 17, a 45-point loss to Collingwood halted the Hawks' push up the ladder and after a good 59-point win over the South the following week, they lost to the Tigers by 11, which really put a finals appearance for the reigning premiers in the balance. Hawthorne, Essendon, position to be in. Yeah, yeah, Hawthorne, Essendon, St Kilda were all battling for those last two spots. In around 20, they took on the Bombers, kind of pivotal to getting that spot. The Hawks started brilliantly, kicking six goals to none in the first term, but the Bombers hit back and eventually took the lead in the third quarter. The Hawks powered home, kicking six of the last nine goals to win by 19 points, with young full forward Michael Moncrief booting 10 of the Hawks' 15 goals to give fans uh, a bit of joy in the absence of Peter Hudson. Uh, Crimo also snagged three to be best on field. The Hawks were belted by 68 points in round 21 by league leaders Carlton at Princess Park. This loss dropped Hawks to fifth, stuck with the Saints and Bombers on 13 wins each. In the final round, the Saints were too good for Hawthorne, winning by 19 points, which pushed them down to sixth, a game in percentage behind the Bombers. Sorry, a game behind Essendon, but with better percentage. Yep. The Hawks had lost a game by one point and another by two points against Essendon after woeful kicking cost them the game. And so for the third season in a row, the reigning Premier has missed the finals. Missed the finals. Yeah, wow, three in a row. Yeah, had a huge loss there for them. Yeah. But as we said, there's not a lot between... As you just mentioned, there's almost nothing between sixth and third. Like, Collingwood were only half a game outside that conversation. So, very, yeah, very close. Uh, So, lead goal kicker, for for the first time, I don't have to say Hutto straight away, was Peter Knights. Wow. With 46, Lee Matthews with 45 just behind him. Hutto still managed to outscore the majority of the team. (laughs) With his eight goals. With his eight goals from a single game, right? From half a game. From half a game. So, yeah. He was still the 14th highest goal kicker in the side. <laughs> uh, and the Peter Crimmins medal in 1972 went to Don Scott. There you go. Yeah. Well, there is no uh, night series to talk of, is there? No. So we might wrap this up for now. That's, yeah, that's a, that, that takes it. Well, yeah, no night series. As we mentioned last time, they got rid of it because of dwindling crowds and also because now there's a top five... You can't have a knock a knockout with system teams. with seven teams. No. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's it for now. Uh, come back and join us for the the finalists of the nineteen seventy two season. And geez, 
isn't that going to be an absolute barnstormer of a conversation? Talking about a whole new final system, some ripping sides in there. Yeah. I cannot wait. And the Championship of Australia is back. Oh, yes. In a new format. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, well, until, uh, until, until next, week. next week then. Hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.